PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. I am delighted to welcome you to 2014 with the January issue of Physical Therapy. In looking at the articles for the January issue, I think a theme that emerged for me is one of prognosis or prediction, and I'll try to refer back to that theme as we go through the many articles. I'm going to begin by asking you to read Residencies in Physical Therapy, which was the John Maley lecture delivered by Cornelia Kulig from University of Southern California. It is such a thoughtful piece about residencies. So thank you, Cornelia, and I hope you enjoy the Maley lecture as much as I enjoy listening to it. Now, in turning to the table of contents, the first article is our Linking Evidence and Practice article. This is uh, LEAP, as we refer to it. The LEAP this month is written by Tang and Eng from Canada, McMaster University and University of British Columbia. The question asked this month is, can physical fitness training after stroke improve walking and cardiorespiratory fitness in this population? The authors do a great job summarizing the Cochrane Review that was done in 2010 and provide a really vibrant example of a clinical case. So I really encourage you to look at this leap. The next article is entitled, Direct Access Compared with Referred Physical Therapy Episodes of Care, a Systematic Review. OHA, the first author, is from Temple University. The authors went through 1,501 articles and ended up with eight. So for those of you who are interested in health services research, this is a great example of why we need investigators to look at this type of research. The level of recommendations are either grade B or C, so please hold that in your mind. But there is evidence to suggest that patients in direct access receive fewer medications, less imaging, similar to what would be seen in a physician referral, which would indicate lower cost. Patient satisfaction was higher in direct access, but for me, more importantly, is patient outcomes. And although it's a grade C recommendation, there is a suggestion that patient outcomes were superior with direct access. The next article is entitled, Predictors of Short-Term Outcome to Exercise and Manual Therapy for People with Hip Osteoarthritis. This is what I was talking about related to the theme of prediction. So this is one of the articles. The authors are led by Helen French, who's from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. She's a physiotherapist. I'm going to step back. We know that the diagnosis of osteoarthritis is very heterogeneous. When we look to the hip, it becomes more complicated. There's not as much known about the interventions that are successful and which are preferred in treating persons with hip osteoarthritis. The bottom line is that the authors really could not find predictors that would identify persons who would be successful with a particular type of intervention. This calls for more research. This is a small sample, so I really encourage those of you who are interested in classification to consider the patients with hip osteoarthritis. 
The next article is entitled Exposure to Therapy of Older Patients with Trauma and Factors that Influence Provision of Therapy. This is led by Barbara Resnick and the team from the University of Maryland, Baltimore. The authors were interested in looking at the time between admission into the hospital and the beginning of physical therapy, occupational or speech therapy services. And the study design was a retrospective study. The unique aspect of this study in our literature to date is the authors used electronic medical records. One of the very interesting findings was that there's a two-day delay between referral and onset of therapy. And with all the interesting work that's been published recently about the role that physical therapists can play in a critical care setting, I wonder whether we would see better outcomes, shorter hospitalizations, if the therapists were able to initiate their treatment sooner. The next article led by Lois Hedman from Northwestern University is entitled Locomotor Requirements for Bipedal Locomotion, a Delphi Survey. This is the basis of a podcast Janice Eng, one of the editorial board members, will be moderating. So please listen to the podcast. I'm very pleased to see this work. The next article is Alterations in Respiratory and Muscle Strength and Size in Patients with Sepsis Who Are Mechanically Ventilated. The authors are Baldwin and Burston from South Australia. This is a really interesting paper. My assumption when I started thinking about this article is that if you're mechanically ventilated, you would expect that the diaphragm would atrophy. The bottom line is the diaphragm doesn't atrophy, and it's not clear why. So the assistive muscles, for example, the intercostals, sternocleidomastoid muscles that assist in ventilation are impacted with being sedentary, but the diaphragm is preserved. So I really found this a fascinating study. If you consider, for example, persons who have tetraplegia who have phrenic nerve stimulation or external ventilation, would you see the same type of preservation of the diaphragm? Is this related to the fact that the patient has sepsis? How does this new information feed into our understanding of cardiorespiratory intervention? So I thank the authors for this thoughtful work. The next article is entitled Clinical Trial Registration in Physical Therapy Journals, a Cross-Sectional Study. The authors are led by Abraham Babu and his colleagues from Manipal University in India. The authors were interested in determining how many journals require clinical trial registration. Now, for those of you who are not researchers, you may not care about this, but I'll tell you why I think it's important. In the past, what could happen is if you did not find what you expected to find in your primary variable, you could select another variable and publish that other variable as your study outcome. And that other variable may not be related to the theoretical framework or the initial hypotheses. By registering your trial, what it means is you say up front what your hypothesis is and what variables you've selected. I'm proud to say that physical therapy jumped on this bandwagon in 2009. Very recently, the International Journal of Physiotherapy Editors, who are a subcomponent of WCPT, many of those journals are also mandating clinical trial registration. So the authors examined 13 journals and their publication history between 2008 and 2012. Of the 13 journals, eight recommended trial registration, When they looked at the 4,618 articles that were published during that four-year period, they found that of the clinical trials, 
29% were actually registered. Now, if you compare that to physical therapy during the same period of time, 51% of our trials were registered. And remember, we began requiring registration in 2009. So I'm proud of us. The next five articles are measurement studies. And again, each of them has the possibility of being involved in prediction or prognosis. So I'm going to not lump them together, but be very brief and encourage you to read them if you're interested in a certain measurement tool. The first article is entitled, Rash Analysis Supports the Use of the Pain Self-Efficacy Questionnaire. Pietro and his colleagues are from the University of New South Wales. The authors were interested in finding out whether the pain self-efficacy questionnaire that is used by physical therapists in practice and research has good psychometric properties. And the bottom line is that it does. We all know how important it is to measure pain. Patients get tired of rating their pain on a 0 to 10 scale. So the concept of a self-efficacy questionnaire, a self-report, looking at pain a bit differently is something that you might want to consider. The next article is entitled Adherence to Accelerometry Measurement of Community Ambulation Post-Stroke. The lead author is Sharon Barak from Sheba Medical Center in Israel. She and her colleagues were part of the Locomotor Experience Applied Post-Stroke Investigative Team. The question that these authors had is, are the patients really wearing the devices? Because if you get data back and it looks as though nobody's walking, the question is, Are they sedentary or are they not using the device? So the authors found that, in fact, there wasn't good adherence. What we need to do is figure out methods to encourage the patients to use these devices so that you can actually monitor their activity or develop devices that can be embedded in the skin and worn routinely. The next article is entitled Questionnaire to Identify Knee Symptoms development of a tool to identify early experiences consistent with knee osteoarthritis. The authors are led by Jessica Clark. They're all from Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. Again, for those of you who are familiar with knee osteoarthritis, you know that knee osteoarthritis is a common chronic disability in our global population. And the interest of this team is in identifying symptoms or signs that occur very early so that one can be more proactive in preventing the development of full-blown knee osteoarthritis. The next article is entitled Reliability of a Progressive Maximal Cycle Ergometer Test to Assess Peak Oxygen Uptake in Children with Mild to Moderate Cerebral Palsy. The team is led by Bram from the University of Amsterdam. So treadmill testing is not ideal for looking at aerobic capacity in persons with cerebral palsy. So the authors looked at the reliability of using a psychoergometer test. If you're interested in fitness in children or adults with cerebral palsy, this article gives you some suggestions on using a tool that will give you reliable peak oxygen uptake values. The final article in this measurement series is Relative and Absolute Reliability of a Vertical Numerical Pain Rating Scale Supplemented with a Faces Pain Scale After Stroke. The authors are led by Li-Ling Chang and colleagues from a number of universities and hospitals in Taiwan. One of the concerns about a pain rating scale alone is that it might not provide a tool that some persons post-stroke can use. So the authors were interested in looking at both 
the numeric pain rating scale and the FACES pain scale together to perhaps get a more robust measure of pain after stroke. So again, those of you who are treating patients with neuromuscular disorders, you might want to read this paper and see whether this is a good tool for you to use in pain assessment. I really encourage you to look at the perspective this month. It's entitled Priming the Brain to Capitalize on Metaplasticity and Stroke Rehabilitation. The lead author is Jessica Cassidy. The team is from the University of Minnesota. The article talks about repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation and its use in what they call metaplasticity. So we know that the brain reorganizes daily when we learn a new activity. And in recent years, the focus has been, does this reorganization enhance or inhibit recovery of function? And how can we use particular interventions to facilitate that metaplasticity? So this article fits in really nicely with the perspective that was presented last month that looked at brain-derived neurotrophic factor and the role that that plays in enhancing plasticity. So I encourage you to look at these two articles, last month's by Cameron Mang with the senior author, Lara Boyd, and this current article to really enhance your understanding of this concept of metaplasticity. In closing, and inspired by Cornelia Kulig's John Maley lecture, what kinds of residencies do we need? Do we need a family practice residency, an internal medicine residency? How many specialists do we need? Where should they be trained? All of those are really, really important questions that we should begin to ponder in a more systematic way. Happy New Year! Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.